You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we wrap up the story of the Belgica expedition. Let's get going. Last time we had concluded with the return of the sun in July of 1898. The men saw seals and heard penguins. Life and hope was returning to Antarctica. Most of the men believed the ice would break up by late November, or at least by December, and they could escape its grasp. But that was four to five months away, a long time. And everyone knew that polar ice was fickle by nature. There was no guarantees when, or even if, Belgica would break out of the pack. But still hope had returned, and so the men began to emerge from their winter funk and get to work. They had built snowbanks around Belgica as insulation, and they now tunneled through those barriers and established paths around the ship. For clothing, the men stitched together red blankets and made them into winter coats. These were lined with wolf fur, which had been brought by Dr. Frederick Cook. On July 31st, a hunting party, consisting of Cook, Roald Amundsen, and Georges Lequante, set off, aiming for a big iceberg estimated to be about 16 miles away. There, it was believed they could find penguins. They expected the journey to take one to two days, and then an equal number back. By the way, the idea was that the men would never lose sight of the iceberg or the ship. If they lost sight of the ship, there was a good chance they would never find their way back. The men were excited to be out and doing something after being cooped up for so long. In fact, they created a mock fraternal society, which they dubbed the Order of the Penguin. Amundsen was the chairman, and they were all knights in the order. Max van Rijsselberger made each of them a medal from old tin cans. The medals had the slogan, Speed, Deprivation, carved into them. For this excursion, Loquante and Amundsen would be on skis, pulling a sail sledge designed by Amundsen and Cook. Cook would go on snowshoes. By the way, Loquante's participation in the journey was a testament to Cook's recipe of eating raw meat to battle scurvy. Just a few weeks earlier, the man had been near death. But here he was on a ski journey during the coldest month of the year in Antarctica. The sledge carried food, provisions, rifles, and ammunition. Degarlache, despite not feeling well, walked with the men a short ways, then shook hands with each and wished them good luck with the hunt. Now, it wasn't long before the men ran into a couple of major issues. First, the topography of the Antarctic ice was troublesome. From a distance, it looked easy enough, but soon they encountered ridges, cracks, crevasses, and open water holes. The men had to find their way over or around any such obstacles, making travel slower than expected. Second, they quickly found that man-hauling a sledge, even one with a sail, was brutally hard work. Cook had used dogs and sleds in Greenland, and it wasn't long before he saw how inefficient man-hauling was. The men would work hard and sweat profusely, despite the temperature dropping below negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 34 Celsius. After this excursion, Amundsen and Cook would become fans of using dogs and sleds. But the British would continue to champion the practice of man-hauling, as we have seen in the expeditions of Robert Falcon Scott and Ernest Shackleton. As the men moved away from Belgica, they found the ice consisted of many tightly packed floes. There were a lot of openings, and the men saw seals and whales. If you are wondering why the men didn't just hunt some seals, the answer is that a seal can weigh more than a thousand pounds. This makes them really hard to haul back to the ship. Due to their smaller size, penguins were much easier to transport, thus they were the target. By the way, as they were traveling, the men would stop and take compass bearings. Cook describes one such moment, the sun gliding along the horizon, laying down beams of gold in the endless white of the pack. Of it, he says, quote, the scene here was a picture for the gods, end quote. It's great stuff, told in Cook's fine prose. The three men came to a large area, several miles wide, of freshly frozen ice, like a lake. They tentatively tried to cross the ice, which at times cracked under their weight. It was a painfully slow process, much slower than anticipated. They eventually came to a channel of open water that blocked their path. They retreated to an area of old solid ice next to the new ice to set up camp for the night. Cook and Amundsen quickly put up a tent they had made, the men proud that their design had worked exactly as planned. 
They had a small ethanol burning stove, which took six hours to thaw their food and melt snow for water. It was another example of Amundsen and Cook taking note of the need to improve on something if travel on the ice pack was going to be feasible in the future. The next morning, the men had hoped to find a way across the open water. However, when they exited their tent, they found everything had changed. The channel before them had opened into a lead as far as the eye could see. Cook said it was, quote, a great polar river in the mid-polar sea of ice, end quote. The three men saw hundreds of whales and seals, but no penguins. This sudden opening is an example of how the ice pack could change dramatically in just a few hours. Anyhow, Laquante, Cook, and Amundsen hoped the way across the channel would present itself, and while the water did ice over, it was not nearly sturdy enough for the men to cross. Thus, they camped again at the same spot as the previous night. And despite the success of their new tent, Cook would demonstrate how to really live it up on the ice by leading the men in the construction of an igloo, which he had learned from the Inuit of Greenland. Over the course of three hours, the men sawed out blocks of snow and stacked them in circles. They packed snow into any openings. The result was amazing. The igloo was spacious, warm, and free of condensation. And another great thing was that it was well lit by just a single candle. And that's because the light source bounces off the walls of the igloo. And despite it being colder than negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 34 Celsius, outside, Roald Amundsen found it warm enough inside the igloo to write in his diary without gloves. The men would spend the next two nights in the igloo, reading and playing cards, while bonding over the challenges of the expedition. Cook, in particular, was frustrated with Commandant Dagger Lash, specifically his refusal to eat barely any penguin meat. The man was risking the success of the expedition, Cook argued, by being so stubborn. Laquante would suffer no criticism of his boss, but he did admit that he was concerned about the Commandant's health. The men were still thinking about the expedition, specifically the dash for the South Magnetic Pole, which they still hoped to accomplish. They wondered if Degarlash was physically capable of such a thing. And thus, from this conversation emerged a plan for Laquante to write up a proposal for himself, Cook, and Amundsen to make a run for the pole themselves, using dogs and sleds. Now, to you and me, that probably sounds like a solid rational decision, but for these men, it was a bold idea. It was giving them the chance to take the greatest glory, reaching the magnetic South Pole, out of the hands of the expedition's leader. It might make Degarlash appear weak and cowardly. He might be offended by such an idea. No matter, the men agreed to the plan, and they turned their attention to reaching the iceberg and hunting some penguins. And on the morning of August 3rd, they woke to find a path to the big berg had formed. Awesome, right? Well, no. And that's because when the men looked around, they found something immensely disturbing— they had lost sight of Belgica. Degerlache had a rule when men left the ship. Never lose sight of Belgica. Never. Because if you do, you might never find your way back. And here were Laquante, Cook, and Amundsen, lost on the pack due to the fog and the shifting ice. The men gave up their goal of reaching the iceberg and started back in the general direction of Belgica, Laquante trying to get compass bearings as they went. The problem was that the slightest error could lead them off course. The chance of walking right past Belgica was very real. As the men moved across the ice, they struggled due to the heavy fog. They stumbled over barely seen ridges and nearly fell into crevasses that were sighted only a few steps ahead of them. And then after repeatedly running into open water, they realized something distressing. They were adrift on an ice floe, which is a large mass of floating ice. They were trapped. That night, the men set up a camp on a floe that measured about 20 meters or 65 feet wide. Things looked bleak. Cook writing, quote, I cannot imagine a position in the polar pack more hopeless, end quote. Their location was so dangerous, someone had to stand to watch at all times, just in case the ice decided to break up under them. The men would spend the next couple of days on ice floes, moving the bigger ones as the floe they were on broke up and became unstable. After a few days of this, and food running low, Amundsen would sight an iceberg that he recognized was near the ship. It was not long before the fog lifted and Belgica was sighted. Now, despite this, it would take a couple of days for the three men to be rescued from their ice floe, and that's only after the wind shifted the pack, allowing them to move from ice floe to ice floe and reach Belgica. In the end, the penguin hunting excursion was a failure, but it did provide a unique bonding experience for the participants. I thought it was interesting to see three men of very different backgrounds, languages, and nations, a Belgian, a Norwegian, and an American, working together and finding common cause. Another thing about the excursion was that the large leads in the ice encountered offered the crew hope that something would eventually open up for Belgica and allow her to make a run for freedom. 
However, despite this possibility, the men were again showing worrisome signs, especially regarding their mental health. On August 7th, Seaman Jean van Mierlo handed a note to one of his shipmates. The note said, quote, I can't hear, I can't speak, end quote. Cook examined Van Merlo and found there was nothing wrong with him, physically. What Cook saw was a man having a mental breakdown, and he ordered someone to watch him around the clock. Van Merlo would find his voice a week later, but what he said then was more disturbing than not talking at all. He said he was going to murder his boss, Chief Engineer Henri Summers. Word spread around the ship about Van Merlo's issues, and frankly, it disturbed the crew. Who next was going to succumb to madness? And what if Van Merlo actually went on a rampage? Such thoughts haunted the men. Also, Seaman Adam Tollefson began to show signs of breaking down as well. His behavior was erratic, and he showed signs of paranoia. And then, when September arrived, the cold returned with it, the temperature falling to negative 45 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 43 degrees Celsius. The ship was firmly locked in the ice, and the open lead site of the previous month froze over. The men of Belgica were convinced the ship would not be freed that winter, and they doubted their survival. With this setback, there was a relapse amongst the crew. The men suffered from headaches, swollen legs, elevated heart rates, and anxiety. Three of the crew became bedridden because they became so weak. All three of those men had stopped eating penguin and seal meat. Degarlache and Laquante fell into a funk as well, sure that they would never get out of the ice. Degarlache continued to suffer from the effects of scurvy. Frederick Cook was alarmed at all that he saw and warned everyone that they needed to escape the ice soon. If they didn't, he doubted they would survive. This warning led the men to conduct the first experiments with tonite, an explosive similar to dynamite, but supposedly stronger. Captain Laquante, a former artillery officer, would oversee these experiments. An examination of the tonite brought some worries. The waterproof paraffin casings had melted when passing through the tropics, and the tonite was no longer sealed. The men found stick after stick of tonite, which is whitish in appearance and made up of equal parts gun cotton and barium nitrate, was ruined. Also, the extreme cold made many of the fuses brittle, and they just snapped off. Laquante recovered 160 usable sticks and brought them onto the ice, far away from the ship. There he tested the tonite's power. The result was dismal. The tonite went off, but not with an explosion. Instead, there was a small flame sending up a column of smoke, it had created a 10-foot-wide, 4-foot-deep hole in the ice, essentially melting the surface snow. Laquante would do a second test the next day, this time with 500 sticks. The results were disappointing as well. He then came to the conclusion that the tow night needed to be thawed. Thus, he slept that night with 160 sticks in his bed. His third attempt was also a bust. The failure of the tow night was a sharp blow to the morale of the men on the ship. They had figured that, at the very least, the explosives would give them a chance to blast their way through the ice to a lead, but that hope was now gone. Morale plummeted as the men no longer felt they had any control of their lives. By late September, Degalash had retreated to his cabin, tired, depressed, and suffering from constant migraines. Any hope of breaking out of the ice by the end of the year seemed out of reach. The commandant was racked with guilt, sure he had doomed his men. Of it, Laquante said, quote, he is sad and taciturn, seeking solitude. End quote. In early October, Degarlache showed signs of advanced scurvy, as did two other men, Louis Michat, the cook, and Jules Maillarts, the third officer. Now, it was around this same time that some leads did open up within sight of Belgica. This caused Laquante to attempt two more experiments with the tonite. This time, his bombs exploded, but they didn't cause much damage. As a precaution, the remaining tonite, which still amounted to nearly half a ton, was taken out onto the ice, just in case. Now is a good time to talk about a few things regarding the expedition. First, remember when I talked about how Laquante was going to speak to Degarlache about the future of the expedition? Well, he did so, putting out the idea of Amundsen himself and Cook making a dash for the pole. Degarlache countered with the idea of continuing the expedition, but without the south magnetic pole part. Instead, the ship would essentially circumnavigate the continent, doing some map and scientific work. Degarlache put off any decisions for now. However, after weeks of pressure from Laquante, Degarlache relented and agreed to a third year of the expedition, but he kept any plans vague. He did put into writing his decision to extend the expedition, and Laquante would hold up this pledge when Degarlache wavered about the expedition's future. Second, as the ship moved from October to November, the men continued to show signs of breaking. Scurvy was again an issue. 
Degar Lash was so sick, he openly questioned doing an additional year. He suggested Laquante, Cook, and Amundsen organize their own expedition. This angered Laquante, who knew that such a thing was far easier said than done. He pointed to Degar Lash's earlier pledge to continue the expedition and insisted it be honored. It was the first real crack in their relationship. Third, the men were beginning to turn on one another. Henrik Arktowski, the geologist and meteorologist, was ordered by Degar Lash to turn over all the meteorological data to him to transfer to the ship's log. Arktowski refused, afraid his work and contributions would get buried. The two men were so angry and frustrated with one another, they only spoke via letter, a way to create a literal paper trail. Arktowski was determined to bolt the expedition the first chance he got. Another more serious situation evolved around Degar Lash and Roald Amundsen. Amundsen was the ship's first mate and third in command. However, at this time, Amundsen found that all the other officers and scientists on Belgica, except Frederick Cook, had signed contracts with the Royal Belgian Geographical Society, one of the chief sponsors of the expedition, saying that a non-Belgian could not command the expedition. Thus, if something happened to Degar Lash and Laquante, Jules Maillarts, who Amundsen disliked, would become the commander. This infuriated Amundsen, who was an intensely prideful man. He had never been given this contract, and he certainly knew nothing about it. This was a betrayal. Amundsen put his grievances in writing to Degar Lash. He said the contract robbed him of his rights and honor. It was a disgrace. He resigned on the spot, but vowed to do his job until the ship was freed from the ice. Degar Lash was stunned by Amundsen's reaction. He tried to dismiss the issue, writing a letter to Amundsen, insisting no one would usurp his position as first mate and he begged ignorance as to the fact that Amundsen had not been given a copy of the contract. This did little to mollify Amundsen, who would never forgive Degarlash for what he saw as a betrayal. Going forward, Amundsen would do his job as expected, but his relationship with his commander, who he had admired, was broken and would never be repaired. And so November 1898 arrived, and there was no sign that Belgica was going to be released from the ice. The men were sick and sniping at one another, and to add to the misery, the rats were getting into everything, eating things such as bedding and supplies. And then there was the weather. It snowed for 25 straight days. The ship, they found, was on a two-mile-wide ice floe. The men feared another year in the ice was inevitable. And if that was not enough, on November 20th, Belgica's hull sprung a leak. Water had seeped into the weakest planks and had pulled up in the rear of the ship. Thankfully, it was a minor leak and not a rupture. One of the reasons this was happening was that the ship was covered in layers and layers of snow, weighing it down. The pumps would have to run for six hours to remove the water out of the ship, while the men spent several days clearing the ship of tons of snow. With that, a crisis was averted, but it was a sign that anything could happen at any time in the future. Now, a lot of what I have talked about in this episode has been bad, but on November 27th, there would be something positive, and that was the Midnight Sun. Now the Belgica was under perpetual light for the next two months. This led to an impromptu festival, with Ludwig Yalmar Johansson breaking out his accordion. Singing and revelry began, everyone joining in, except for Degar Lash, who stayed in his cabin. The commandant did send word to break out some champagne. Now, the constant sun did present a new challenge to the crew, insomnia. The ever-present light made sleeping a problem for some of the men. Otherwise, the mental health of Adam Tollefson continued to worsen. He was increasingly paranoid, suffering from headaches and memory loss, and avoiding interacting with the other men. He even began to sleep in the freezing hold of the ship, the rats' his only company. It got so bad that John Van Mierlo, who had had his own mental health issues, became concerned and volunteered to keep an eye on Tollefson. By mid-December, Tollefson was convinced he was being poisoned. More than once the seaman was found out on the ice, wandering around or hiding behind a ridge. He was getting worse and worse. Christmas 1898 arrived, and there was little to cheer about for the men of Belgica. They tried to celebrate, but as Cook noted, the enthusiasm amongst the men was forced. The greatest concern for everyone was the fact that Belgica was caught in an ice floe that was two miles wide, or 3.2 kilometers. They were stuck and needed something, such as a big storm, to shake them from the ice's grip. The ice around the ship was still several meters thick. One hummock was 26 feet thick, or 8 meters. Nowhere was the ice less than three feet or one meter thick. And so that takes us to 1899. Belgica was approaching a year stuck in the ice. In that time, she had drifted about 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers in a sort of a loop. They were close to the same spot where Degarlache had taken the ship into the pack the previous February. It drove the men crazy that the edge of the ice pack might be 100 miles away 
or just over the horizon. And then in early January, Frederick Cook came forward with a plan to get out of the ice. The recent movements of the pack had put Belgica to within 1,300 feet or 400 meters of a large lead of open water. Now, for Belgica, 1,000 feet may as well have been 1,000 miles, but not for Frederick Cook. He proposed digging two long, wide trenches in a V formation, branching out in the front of the ship to the water. They would then fill the trenches with soot, which Cook thought would aid in melting the ice. These trenches would thus expose the underlying ice to the warm rays of the sun and melt and weaken the ice. Explosives could then be used to break up the ice. This would give Belgica the opportunity to push its way through the channel and into open water. Without any other options available, work began on the trenches on January 7th. Cook's plan was a desperate one and fundamentally flawed. The sun just didn't melt the ice like what was needed, and the trenches simply filled up and froze over each day. And when Laquante tried to shatter the flow with 500 sticks of tonite, the results were disappointing. The tonite exploded, but it didn't cause the ice flow to crack up like they had hoped. The men would attack the trenches for three days, but soon it became obvious the plan was not going to work. And so on January 11th, a new meeting was called. This one by none other than Adrien de Garlache. The commander had another idea, perhaps a bit inspired by Cook's plan. Belgica had on board four old ice saws from the ship's whaling days. De Garlache proposed cutting a full-fledged canal from the ship to the open water. But de Garlache wasn't going to follow the route Cook had proposed. The ice, he argued, was far too thick in that direction. Instead, he proposed making two cuts, or banks, from the back of Belgica to the open water 700 meters, or 2,300 feet, away. The ice to the rear of Belgica was thinner, only about 1 to 2 meters thick, and would be easier to cut. It was an audacious plan, and would take weeks and weeks, and require the participation of nearly everyone on the ship. But you know what? It's not like anyone had anything better to do. And so it began— the 2,300-foot-long channel would be wider at the mouth, 100 meters, or 330 feet, and then it would gradually narrow down to 10 meters, or 33 feet, when it reached Belgica. Once these two long banks were cut, the men would then start to cut apart the ice between the banks and push it out into the open water at the mouth. The men would start with the two banks. Combined, this was nearly a mile of sawing. These banks were not straight and actually a curve. And I note that what I'm going to describe might be a little confusing, so I put some rough drawings of how the sawing was done on our website, explorerspodcast.com. There is a link in the show notes. There you can see a visual of how all of this was done. Anyhow, the sawing began on January 14th. They broke into two teams, working eight-hour shifts. Three men would saw for five minutes, then three more would take over. Five minutes later, three more men would step in. Everyone worked, except for Michat, the cook, who was tasked with keeping the men well-fed. Even de Garlache took his turn on the saws. On the first day, the men cut 40 meters along the bank. They were utterly exhausted after not doing any hard work for months, but they were united, which gave them a unique strength. Interestingly, the person who was most skeptical of the entire enterprise was Roald Amundsen. He grumbled that it would never work, perhaps his judgment clouded by his feelings towards de Garlache. No matter, he worked as hard as any man. And so the channel cutting went forward. When the men ran into some ice too thick to cut, tonite was brought in and Laquante blasted the problematic section. The tonite may not have been a miracle, but used in strategic locations, it was effective. Laquante, by the way, set up a bomb-making factory in the wardroom of the ship. He and his aides thawed out the tonite and scraped off the damaged parts to make it usable. This was wildly dangerous, as one mistake would have destroyed the ship. But it only demonstrates how desperate the men were. And so the banks were cut from the edge of the ice towards Belgica, 2,300 feet on each bank. Next, they had to remove the ice out of the channel. This was achieved by a unique design provided by Frederick Cook. He proposed cutting the ice between the banks in asymmetrical quadrilaterals. Again, you can look at a map of this design on the website, and it will give you a better grasp of how this was accomplished. The men worked and worked hard. They were seeing progress, but knew that their window of opportunity was limited. On January 21st, the night returned for the first time in two months. It was only a matter of time before the sun faded and the cold returned and the ice froze over. Now, despite the hard work, the men were getting healthier by the day, and that's because they got hungry due to the exhausting work. This made them eat more. Cook said the men ate like bears. And what did they eat? Well, they ate seal and penguin steaks twice a day. Scurvy thus cleared up and the men grew stronger. 
As the men cleared more and more of the ice, they found it harder to do so as they neared Belgica. The snow around the ship was older and thicker. Progress was slow here, but there was progress, and as January came to a close, it was estimated they would clear the channel within three days. By the way, there are photos of the men cutting the canal, and they are amazing. It's awesome to see this long line of open water, the channel they had cut, running from Belgica for nearly half a mile. And then there are photos of the men cutting the ice between the banks and guiding these pieces to the channel entrance to be pushed into the open water. It's pretty darn cool. And then on January 31st at 9 a.m., there was a thunderous crack, like an explosion. A crack in the ice flow had formed from the back of Belgica going to the open water and running parallel to the man-made canal. Slowly, this new crack widened, and in doing so, it began to push the two banks of the man-made channel towards one another. Again, you can look at our map on our website to understand this a little better. Anyhow, this was a disaster. The banks of the cruise channel were pressing together, and they did not stop until they were within a few feet of one another. The width of the canal, which had been enough to get Belgica through, was now not even wide enough for the lifeboats. And the crack that had opened and caused all of this to happen, well, that was not wide enough to sail anything through either. The men were devastated. Weeks of constant hard work had been ruined in a single morning. Amazon proposed that the lifeboats be ready for sailing. They could take them to the ice's edge and put them into the water. They would then have to make their way through the ice and sail across the Drake Passage for Cape Horn. This was suicide, but there were no other ideas, so preparations were begun. However, it was found that most of the heavy winter gear had been ruined by the rats, thus the prospect of surviving the coming weeks and months in the outdoors and in freezing temperatures was almost nil. Degarlache wrote, quote, It no longer seems that we can avoid a second wintering. End quote. The men would keep up their work on the canal, sawing through the ice that formed each night. Another thing, chunks of ice had formed at the mouth of the channel, blocking any passage into the open water. So, just as things appeared doomed, nature would give the men of Belgica some hope. In early February, they felt the swell of the ocean under them. Also, they heard pops and cracks in the ice. This offered them the hope that they needed. The swell might destabilize the ice, which could free the ship, or trap them even more tightly. And then, on the morning of February 12th, the winds and currents came together to offer Belgica an escape route. The canal banks that the men had been carving up for the past four weeks opened, and not just a little, but enough for Belgica to sail through. It was now or never. Degarlache ordered the engines fired up. This was their chance. But as always, there were some obstacles for our explorers. The first was the ice packed tight against the ship. This was thick, hard, old ice, impossible to saw through. They would have to use tonite to break it up, which was wildly dangerous as detonating an explosive so close to the ship could blow a hole in the hull or destroy the rudder. But it's not like they had other options. So Captain Laquante began to test and experiment with varying amounts of tonite until he was ready. He then planted a series of small bombs designed to break up the ice next to Belgica. When the explosives went off, one after the other, the Belgica shook, windows broke, and the men prayed. And you know what? Those prayers were answered. Laquante's explosives had been perfectly placed. The ice was clear from the ship, and Belgica was unharmed. Obstacle number one had been overcome. Obstacle number two was more unique. Remember, the channel to the Belgica had been cut from the rear of the ship to take advantage of the thinner ice. Well, Belgica was pointed the wrong way. She could not back up all the way down the channel. She needed to turn around first. For that, the men worked feverishly for a full day, cutting a small area for the ship to turn around in. It was like a parking spot for a car. The ship would be maneuvered into the spot, allowing it to execute a three-point turn. And so the area was cut open, and the next day, Belgica began her maneuver. And it was halfway through the three-point turn when the wind suddenly shifted, pushing the canal banks closer together. This exposed the propeller and rudder directly to the ice, threatening to crush them. But even worse, the canal was now too narrow for Belgica to complete her turn. The men could do nothing, just wait for nature to decide their fates. Then, as suddenly as the ice had come together, it loosened its grip, widening the channel. Belgica completed her turn. She was now pointed at the mouth of the canal, full steam ahead. For 2,000 feet, Belgica built up ahead of steam, aiming for one last obstacle, the barrier of ice that had built up at the mouth of the channel. Degarlache ordered the barrier rammed at full speed. The men held their breath as the ship plowed towards this final obstacle. The result? Belgica was victorious. 
the stout whaler smashing her way through the ice and into open water, just like she was designed to do. The men cheered. Cook wrote, No body of men was ever happier than the officers and crew of the Belgica as the good ship thumped the edge of the ice which had held her prisoner for nearly a year. End quote. Belgica moved into the open lead of water in search of freedom. From the crow's nest, open water was sighted about a dozen miles away. It was the ocean. The ship was so close to breaking free of the pack, but 12 miles is a long way in this situation. It's not as if there was a single channel the ship could follow. Leads and clearings had to be meticulously explored. Author Julian Sancton, in his book, Madhouse at the End of the Earth, wrote, quote, The Belgica had no choice but to sail westward within the drifting ice and take every opportunity to wend, wedge, and batter her way from one lake to the next in an effort to reach the pack's northern limit, end quote. Belgica crushed the ice under her weight whenever she could. By March 1st, the ship was within five miles of the ocean. But the weather was getting nasty. The waters whipped up and threw ice at the ship. Waves swept over the deck. Each day, Belgica was battered by tons and tons of ice. Amazon said, quote, The ship is shaken hard and trembles like a leaf, end quote. Cook devised a grisly plan to help out the situation. He had the carcasses of penguins hung on the sides of the ship at key points, absorbing the blows when the ship struck ice. And the men did everything they could to save the ship and keep moving forward. Laquante detonated tonite on the pack, blowing the ice into less dangerous slush. And the crew hacked and sawed the ice when they needed to open a path. Slowly, surely, Belgica pressed north. And then, on March 14th, with Degarlache at the helm, the ship sailed through a mass of ice flows, narrowly avoiding a huge berg. At 2 p.m., they sailed past the northern edge of the pack and into the ocean. Belgica was free. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Hey, explorers, it's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Now that Belgica was free of the ice pack, Degarlache had to make a decision as to the next step in the voyage. Would the ship and her crew continue to explore? If so, where to? Well, to be honest, the idea of continuing was unimaginable to most of the men. The entire crew was physically and mentally shot. Laquante, Amundsen, and Cook, who very much wanted to reach the magnetic South Pole, even agreed, albeit reluctantly. And so Degarlache gave orders to head towards Cape Horn. Belgica's mission was over. The ship sailed across Drake's Passage and into the channels of Tierra del Fuego. On March 28, 1899, they reached Punta Arenas. When the men came ashore, it was like a dream. Some were giddy, aimlessly kicking at the sand and pebbles. Everyone had an odd gait to their walks due to having not been on land for well over a year. Of course, the first things the men thought about were food, women, and booze. Although they had to clean themselves up as they were horrible looking, they were dirty and hairy and had patched filthy clothing. Even the rough and rugged inhabitants of Punta Arenas thought them odd-looking. Degarlache would take steps to make sure that he was the one to tell the world of Belgica's return, and after that, the expedition's members began to break apart. The scientists, Rakovica, Arktowski, and Dobrowolski, along with Laquante, stayed in South America to conduct research. 
Amundsen, keeping a vow to be rid of Dagar Lash, volunteered to bring the broken Adam Tollefson home to Norway on a different ship. Tollefson, by the way, was unhinged. He ran off into the wilderness and only returned when he ran out of food. He would never get back on Belgica, and his companions would burn his diary. Dagar Lash sailed Belgica to Montevideo and then to Belgium with a skeleton crew. As he was out of money, he had to use his sails to return home since he could not afford any coal. Belgica would arrive in Antwerp on November 5, 1899. The ship had been prettied up with a new coat of paint, and some of the crew had rejoined her for her triumphant return. The ship sailed into the harbor, surrounded by countless yachts and boats, as well as thousands of cheering people. The men of Belgica had returned as heroes to an adoring nation. That they had not mapped that much of the coast was brushed off, as was the failure to make a go for the magnetic South Pole. Instead, Belgium and the world embraced the brave and resilient men who had wintered in a mysterious place, doing what no one had ever done in the annals of history. The press and the public ate up that narrative. The expedition had done Belgium proud. There would be parties and banquets and celebration. There would be medals for Degarlache and Laquante from the Royal Geographical Society of Antwerp. And the officers and scientists were made knights of the Order of Leopold, the nation's highest honor. All the crew were celebrated and feted for their accomplishments. And that, my friends, really brings the Belgica expedition to a close. It was a heck of a ride. Now, before I talk about the legacy of Belgica, I do want to go through some of the expedition's members just to wrap up their lives. But know that we won't talk about each person. Some of the men simply fade into history, and not much is known about them. I'll start with a couple of sad notes. Adam Tollefson, the seaman who had suffered a breakdown, never fully recovered. He ended up spending most of the rest of his life in various institutions and asylums. Another of the expedition's sailors, a Norwegian named Engelbrecht Knudsen, who I'd never mentioned in the series, died after returning to civilization. His death was attributed to the lingering effects of scurvy. Regarding a couple of the able seamen of Belgica, I'll start with Jan van Mierlo, the man who was known for his mediocre cornet playing and a breakdown during the expedition, would recover. He became a locksmith and regularly went to sea. In 2009, when a team dove to the wreck of the Belgica, his great-grandson was on that dive. Ludwig Jalmar Johansson, whose accordion playing was one of the true positives of the long stay in the ice, would return to Norway, marry, and have six children. He would die, however, in 1914. Moving on to the scientists, the trio of Henrik Arktowski, Emil Rakowica, and Antonio Dobrowolski would have distinguished scientific careers. Arktowski, who was Polish, went on to become a renowned international meteorologist. Also, he was a key individual in restoring Polish independence after World War I and had a prolific academic career. With the outbreak of World War II, he found himself in America and worked as a researcher for the Smithsonian. He lived in the United States until his death in 1958. An Antarctic station is named after the man, as well as a cave, a peninsula, and multiple mountains. Plus, there is a Polish survey ship. There is also the Arktowski Medal, awarded every two years by the National Academy of Sciences, for studies in solar physics and solar terrestrial relationships. Emil Rakovica, our Romanian zoologist and biologist, would later become a speedyologist, a cave expert, exploring more than 1,400 caves in his lifetime. He also became a respected scientist and academic, and is best remembered as the founder of biospeedology, which is a branch of biology dedicated to the study of organisms that live in caves. He has several caves named after him, as well as the first Romanian Antarctic station. Our third scientist, Antonio Dobrowolski, was the assistant meteorologist on Belgica. He was interesting as he had been initially contracted as a sailor, but found his niche as a scientist. He would eventually return to Poland and become a successful scientist, founding several observatories. In his lifetime, he was involved in the planning of numerous Polish expeditions to the Arctic, but he never went on any other adventures himself. He is viewed as a sort of father figure amongst Polish explorers and scientists. There are numerous places named after him, including an island, a glacier, and a mountain. So, after our scientists, I'll talk about the captain of Belgica, Georges Lacointe. The man returned to Belgium a hero. He got married and started a family. He would then be appointed to lead the study of Belgica's scientific works. The commission, which included Arktowski, Rakowice, and Dobrowolski, would analyze and publish these results, a task that took 40 years to complete. It is a testament to the outstanding work done by the men of the expedition. Laquante would also write a book about the Belgica expedition, and he would even be named as the leader of the second Belgian Antarctic expedition, but due to lack of funding, the expedition never happened. In World War I, Laquante served as an artillery officer, but most of his life would fall in the realm of science, 
serving as the scientific director of the Royal Observatory of Belgium for 25 years. He died in 1929, and there are all sorts of things named after him, mountains, islands, and even an asteroid. Several ships in the Belgian Navy have been named after Laquante over the past century. The next person I want to talk about is the expedition's commander, Adrian Descarlache. As I said before, Descarlache was a frustrating man. He had some great qualities, but he was not a great leader. His decision to take Belgica into the ice was foolhardy and arrogant. His concerns about the press had been unfounded, as the public loved the story of the men who had braved the Antarctic ice, unlike anyone in history. However, Descarlache had returned to Europe a troubled man. He suffered from fatigue and anxiety, and it would take years before his health returned. Otherwise, Descarlache wrote a book about the Belgica expedition and was content to be the premier expert in polar exploration in Belgium. He had, after all, lived up to the historic Descarlache name. He did, however, stay involved in naval affairs and polar travel. He took part in an expedition to the Persian Gulf in 1901, and in 1905, Belgica was purchased by the Duke of Orléans, a rich adventurer. He hired Descarlache to take him on several trips to the Arctic. And finally, just before World War I, he worked with designer Lars Christensen, who had converted the whaler Patria into the Belgica, on a swanky new ship named Polaris, aimed at taking rich tourists on luxury cruises to the Arctic to hunt polar bears. It was said the vessel was the strongest wooden ship ever built. Well, Descarlache ultimately pulled out of the partnership for financial reasons. The ship was thus sold to another party, who named it Endurance. Yes, the buyer was Ernest Shackleton. You can't make things like that up. Descarlache died in 1934 at the age of 68. He is well remembered and honored for his accomplishments. There are mountains, islands, inlets, and other places named after the man. The most famous is probably the Gerlache Strait, which he had discovered. And in a nifty twist, Descarlache's ancestors have followed in his footsteps as explorers. Descarlache's son, Gaston, led the second Belgian expedition to Antarctica in 1957 and 58, 60 years after his father. And his great-grandson, Henri Descarlache, has submitted the tallest peak on each of the seven continents. Also, he has dived to the wreckage of Belgica. That's pretty cool. So that is it for Descarlache, and the next person I want to talk about is Roald Amundsen. And I will keep this short because someday I will cover the man's life, and it will be epic. He is probably the greatest of the polar explorers. What Amundsen learned on the Belgica expedition would make him an amazing explorer. Much of what he learned, he picked up from Frederick Cook. By the time he came out of the ice, he understood about nutrition, clothing, gear, sleds, dogs, and so much more in the polar environment. As I mentioned before, Amundsen never really forgave Descarlache for what he felt was a betrayal, and the men's relationship would be frosty. But Amundsen, when he got back from the Belgica expedition, was done with people like Descarlache. He published his own account of the expedition, and then moved on to bigger things. In 1903, he would begin an epic attempt to be the first person to follow the Northwest Passage by ship. He went small and fast, skipping the idea of huge expeditions with all sorts of goals and objectives. I think of Amundsen as one of the first professional adventurers. He was not in it for science. He was in it for the challenge and the glory. And so, for his Northwest Passage expedition, he would succeed, surviving two winters iced in in the frigid Canadian Arctic waters. This made the man famous. After that, he turned his attention to the North Pole. However, in 1909, he would be thwarted when his old friend, Frederick Cook, and another American, Robert Perry, each separately announced to the world that they had reached the Pole. Now, later, the claims of Cook would fall under serious doubt, but at the time, Amundsen considered the North Pole reached, and he didn't like doing anything that had already been done. And so, he did something rather controversial. In 1910, he began an expedition to explore the regions of the Arctic, but then, once at sea, he switched course and headed to Antarctica. He then proceeded to be the first person to reach the South Pole, beating Robert Falcon Scott by a month. The controversy was that many people looked at Amundsen as an interloper, sneaking out of the gate early to beat Scott's team. Many people thought that what Amundsen had done was ungentlemanly and unsportsmanlike. And it didn't help that Scott and his team would die on their return journey, casting a cloud over Amundsen's achievements. No matter, Amundsen was the world's preeminent polar explorer. He would go on to do other feats, including being the first person to fly over the North Pole in an airship. Amundsen died in 1928 at the age of 55. He was on a plane searching for a missing explorer. His plane disappeared over the Arctic seas. Amundsen and his five companions lost forever. As I said, Amundsen is an extraordinary subject, and I will cover him in depth in the future. That will be a huge series. 
And the final person I want to discuss is the colorful and controversial Dr. Frederick Cook. Cook, like Amundsen, will get his own series one day, so I will try and keep this wrap-up short, but that will be hard as he is such an interesting person. So, after Punta Arenas, Cook will return to Haberton Ranch in Tierra del Fuego to do more studies of the native people. The last time he had been there, one of the local ranchers, Thomas Bridges, had shown Cook a 30,000-word dictionary of the local language. It was the only copy and invaluable. Cook said that he would take the book back to America and have it published. Well, Thomas Bridges had passed away since Cook had initially been there, but his son, Lucas Bridges, had come into possession of the prized book. He would give Cook the dictionary for publication. Lucas Bridges thought it would be a fitting tribute to his recently deceased father. After that, Cook returned to New York and made three initial publications regarding the Belgica expedition. The first was his observations of the Ona people of Tierra del Fuego. The second publication was of the medical observations of the men aboard Belgica. And the third and final one was the Dictionary of the Local Language, compiled by Thomas Bridges. But big problem here. The publication was credited to Cook, no one else. This would infuriate Lucas Bridges, and in time, Cook's credibility would be assailed for what he had done. Sadly, it would not be the last time. Cook would, however, become a celebrity due to his work. He would publish an entertaining account of the Belgica expedition, releasing his version before Descartes did, a big no-no. But that's Cook. So, over the next two decades, Frederick Cook would go from celebrated explorer to an accused huckster and fraud. In 1903, he attempted to be the first person to climb Mount McKinley, which today we call Denali. He failed but tried again in 1906. He returned this time, triumphant, with a dramatic photo of him standing atop the peak, holding a flag. However, there were whispers of a scandal, and within a few years, people were casting doubt on Cook's accomplishments. Eventually, Cook's climbing companion would admit that he had been bribed to support Cook's claim. The photo was of Cook on a different peak, far from the summit. So, while the false Denali claims are scandalous, it does not come close to the next controversy, Cook's North Pole Expedition. Cook claimed that on an expedition to Greenland, he had marched north with two Inuit men and reached the North Pole on April 21, 1908, and when he returned to civilization, people showered him with praise. But then, not long after that, American naval officer Robert Perry, Cook's old companion, returned from his own expedition, saying he had reached the North Pole. And this led to a very public dispute, with Perry claiming Cook had come nowhere near the Pole. This story really needs a full show, or three, but in the end, Cook's claims were thrown into doubt. Perry and his allies attacked his rival's credibility relentlessly, and justifiably so. Most people believe that Cook did not actually reach the North Pole. And so Cook's reputation fell into ruins, and he turned to other avenues to make ends meet. He eventually took a job promoting oil in Texas, but he ran afoul with the law and was charged and convicted of fraud. He would serve seven years in prison. While in jail, he would be visited by his old friend, Roald Amundsen. The two men had forged a lifelong bond during the Belgica expedition, and not even Cook's humiliating stint in prison broke that bond. Cook would eventually be pardoned for his crimes in 1940 and died later that year. And so I have one final character to talk about before I wrap up, and that is the Belgica herself. The ship had been, honestly, amazing. She had survived in the harshest environment known to humanity and had brought her personnel home. After returning to Europe, Belgica went back to her old life as a whaler and then as a supply ship. In 1905, she was brought north by a new owner, the Duke of Orléans, who used her to chart the coasts of Greenland, Svalbard, and Franz Josef Land. Adrian de Garlache captained the ship. For 20-plus more years, Belgica would go through various uses. And then, in April of 1940, Belgica was scuttled to prevent her from falling into the hands of the Germans. The wreck of the Belgica was discovered in 1990, and as we have noted, some descendants of the original Belgica crew have dived down to the wreck. So that is the story of Belgica and her crew. Let us finish up by talking about the legacy of the expedition and a fun surprise for our next episode. When we bring up the legacy of the Belgica, it's easy to forget about the expedition when people talk about what we call the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. This was a 25-year period, and it was dominated by men like Shackleton, Scott, and Amundsen and the race for the South Pole. The Belgica began that era, but the exploits of the expedition get lost next to what comes later. But the Belgica expedition was critical to the age, and what they accomplished helped make other men, like Amundsen, find greater success and glory. 
Now, the Belgica expedition had many goals when it set out. It was to map thousands of miles of coastline, collect all sorts of scientific samples, and set down a team on the continent and make a run for the magnetic South Pole. As we noted, the Belgica missed out on a lot of that. But you know what? They did accomplish a tremendous amount, and that's not even counting the thrilling nature of Belgica's survival tale. They mapped hundreds of miles of coastline and discovered the Gerlache Strait. They collected thousands of species of plant and animal life. There was moss, lichen, fish, birds, mammals, and insects, many of which were new to science. Also, there was an entire year of meteorological and oceanographic data. There was so much stuff, the commission of the Belgica would take 40 years to analyze and document it all. Also, the expedition was a case study into the psychological and physical challenges of people living in cramped quarters in a desolate location. The observations of Cook have been studied for more than a century, and you know what? They probably will continue to be for centuries to come. There is so much that came out of the Belgica expedition. The realization of the need for a nutritious and edible diet, the use of light therapy, the psychological things people need to survive in such an environment. All of these things were groundbreaking, even if people didn't realize it at the time. The things learned on the Belgica expedition were embraced a decade later by Amundsen and Shackleton and others, and it helped those people survive. In the end, the Belgica expedition is remembered as the first time humans spent a winter in Antarctica. But there was so much more, and I want to add, it was an extraordinary story. Sometimes on this podcast, stories are just great, and this was one of those. And with that in mind, I want to give a shout out to author Julian Sankton, who wrote the book Madhouse at the End of the Earth, the Belgica's journey into the dark Antarctic night. I mentioned in the first episode of the series that when I first read about the Belgica, the problem with telling the story on this podcast was that no one had written a good book about the subject. But that changed with Sankton's book, which was released in 2021. The author told me that he thought the reason the expedition had been ignored by writers in the past was the fact that there were so many sources that were in different languages. There was Flemish, French, Norwegian, English, and even Polish and Romanian. Trying to get all the available sources together, books, diaries, journals, newspaper articles, and understanding them was a huge challenge. But Sankton overcame that and wrote an amazing book, which I highly recommend. And on that note, while the story of the Belgica is complete, I am pleased to announce that the series will continue for one more episode, with an interview with author Julian Sankton. This is the man who probably knows more about the Belgica expedition than any person in the world. I was honored to interview him, and we are blessed to hear his side of the story. So look for that soon. So that is it, the story of the Belgica expedition. Join us next time when we wrap up the series with an interview with author Julian Sankton. Thanks for listening. Take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other awesome and fun shows. This includes History Uncovered and Calm History.